Brothers and sisters, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. As we read this tonight, let me ask you to do something. I want you to picture that you live uh, in the early 60s A.D., and so you are that early generation of believers after the Lord ascended to heaven. And now the first layer, if you will, of uh, believers are beginning to pass away. And you're asking the question, what do we think about death? What are we to think about death? What does the coming and the death, the resurrection, the ascension of King Jesus mean for those whom we love who are passing away? That's the situation here in chapter 4, verse 13. Let's hear God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you'll notice down in verse 11, chapter 5, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. Two references to the context of encouragement. Well, to be a believer is to have certain inescapable views of human history. To have real knowledge of the future. That there is a creator God, a sustaining God, a redeeming God at the center of everything. That human history has both a meaning and goal. That history is moving in a linear fashion to the accomplishment of God's intended ends. But how will human history end as we know it? As some argue, will global warming bring our demise within a hundred years or less? Depending upon who you listen to, a few years ago it was 12 years. So now we're down to 10 years, 9 years or so. One of our congresswomen. Will a nuclear holocaust send our race back to the dark ages? Will mankind establish new colonies on other planets extending our centuries? Well, let me simply and boldly assert that we know exactly how human history ends. Let me say that again. We know exactly how human history ends. The answer is in verse 16. It is the very revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Our history is wrapped up as we know it with the majestic, visible, triumphant, redemptive coming again of Jesus Christ. That's how human history ends. Now, are there other details that we're not aware of? Yes. But they are far less important 
This is the most central truth. Here is our peace, our joy, our hope, our confidence. We know with comforting and definitive certainty that whatever unknowns will come at the end of human history, we know that that, that history is moving towards the second coming of Jesus Christ and his vindication as both redeemer and judge of the earth. The great uh, Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss wrote, Ours is a faith whose center of gravity lies beyond the grave in the world to come. Paul put it this way in the book of Titus. If you were here this morning, you heard us read it. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another Dutch theologian says, Christ's return is the great centerpiece of biblical hope and of our expectation for the future. Well, despite many truths that we Christians rightly possess about the future, one of the great quandaries in terms of detail is this question of death. Ignorance and speculation surrounding death is is rampant. There's a whole cottage industry of movies, books, and psychics who make their living off of this ignorance and speculation. Well, as I mentioned, to set our scene, these are early believers, first-generation believers in Christ, in the first generation of the apostolic church of Christ. And they're asking the questions, what are we to think about those who are dying? And Paul writes to demystify and to banish their and our ignorance. Look at verse 13. More literally, it reads, I do not will that you should be ignorant. Now, our English word ignorant comes from the word that comes into our English as agnostic. In other words, Paul is saying, I do not wish, I do not will that you should not know certain things about death. Paul is saying, you must not think that you cannot know about death. And what are several forms of this ignorance, both in our day and throughout history? Well, that upon death, the soul sleeps in a sort of state of suspended animation, an unconscious state, or a state of purgatory existing in which someone remains until they are freed by some work of faith of another or even of themselves. Or a view of annihilation, that we cease to exist altogether and are folded into the great cosmic unknown. Or the view of perpetual reincarnation. We could multiply those by dozens. But for the believer, this is key. What we know about death and our lives after our body dies, we know by God's gracious revelation in the scriptures and all other sources are pure speculation. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul is saying something like this, that either to him individually or to the apostles more generally, Christ spoke on these issues directly. And Paul says, this is a word from the Lord. 
You'll remember in other places in Paul's writings, not to diminish the worth of his own apostolic word, but he would say, not from the Lord, but I say to you. Well, here Paul is saying, this is a revelation from our gracious God. Paul is telling us that this doctrine of death and our state hereafter comes by no lesser authority than the Son of God himself. And Paul's application is clear. Therefore, encourage one another with these truths. So then, what do we learn by the revelation of Jesus Christ through the apostle about death and dying? Well, listen to one biblical scholar's, I think, appropriate observation. He says this, There's not much here for curiosity, but everything that is necessary for comfort. I want you to hear that again. There's not much here for curiosity, but everything necessary for comfort. The scriptures are to fortify us by giving us reliable, true things to believe, not fantastical things that our emotions are wrangled by. Well, there are three delightful comforts, three encouragements upon which I want us to feast our souls tonight. The first great message from our text that we glean is the wonder of and the central importance of Christ's triumphant return. Read verse 16 and 17 with me. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with, more literally, a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. I want you to see that Paul highlights three features of the Lord's critical importance of his return. First, notice that Paul says that Christ comes personally and bodily to the earth as he did once before in his incarnation. Acts 1 verse 9 tells us that the angels appeared to the disciples when they were witnessing the ascension of Jesus and they proclaimed, this Jesus who was taken up before you into heaven will come in the same way in which you saw him go into heaven. In other words, personally, bodily, recognizably, unmistakably. Second, Christ's return is visible. It's publicly glorious. It's an appearance in which the whole world will view his majesty. Notice that Paul says he comes with the shout of a command. There are three things here that where Paul is is sort of stacking up things to say, this gives you something of the majestic royalty of the return of Jesus Christ. It will be the voice of King Jesus who will shout a command and connect it to the context. It's the command that the dead in Christ will rise. In other words, when Jesus comes, he will shout across the globe into the ages to everyone who has died, awaken. What a mighty shout that will be. There will be an angelic authentication of his coming. 
Paul speaks of the voice of an archangel um, corroborating this pronouncement, this command of Jesus and the trumpet call of heaven. Nothing will be hidden nor secretive about the Lord's return. He will shout across the globe and across the ages. There have been these questions in prophecy conferences and prophecy uh, detailed preaching about this will happen and this will happen and this must happen before Jesus returns. And my dear brothers and sisters, you see none of that in sacred scripture. All of that proceeds from doing improper theological and expositional gymnastics with the scriptures. What we know about the coming of the Savior is largely simple and straightforward. Though there are certainly questions about eschatology and questions about some of the details, the big picture things of which Paul speaks here, there is no lack of clarity. Revelation verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Is there any lack of clarity about that? Jesus describes his own return in Matthew 24. He says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I want you to think of the wonder of this. Our sovereign Lord is coming again, and his chariot is the very clouds of heaven. His return will be loud, a shouted command, the voice of angelic corroboration, a worldwide trumpet blast. All of these signals are signals of regal authority. There is a picture for our mind's eye of one who is a king over all the earth, unlike any other king we've ever seen or read about. This hour is unmistakable, invincible. It's the day of the Lord when all of creation will bow down in awe. In that hour, At the revelation of King Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want you to hear this. The coming of Christ is the next great event on God's redemptive calendar. If you go to Google Calendar, if you were to be able to flip through all the pages of a physical calendar and get to the next great event in redemptive history. That event is the return of Jesus. Nothing remains to be done until he comes except the preaching of the gospel and the bringing in of the elect. It is that simple. Third, I want you to notice under this first point that Christ's return ushers in the end of the ages as we know them. History will forever be changed as it was with the first coming of Christ. There will be 
an end to redemptive history in its promised consummation. In verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that at the resurrection, the great resurrection and our entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom, this closes what we know of human history. What is the importance of this for us right now? First, the Lord's return is the greatest comfort and encouragement for all of us who are in Christ. Let me say it again. The coming return of Jesus Christ in certainty and surety is the greatest encouragement of the Christian life. Now, isn't it true that so often in the midst of our daily lives as believers, we are praying for an outcome that we hope will encourage us and give us profound comfort? And my point is to say that's not inappropriate, but it is deeply short-sighted to believe that those kinds of answers can be the great comfort of our life. This is the great comfort of our life, that Jesus is coming, that he's coming in glory and majesty, and that he's coming for you and me. We who know Christ, as was so beautifully preached this morning, have no condemnation any longer in Christ, but the wonder of a consummate love. And so these are the things that are to be our comfort, that the Lord's return is the greatest comfort. Second, every longing of our reborn souls will be met in that hour. Every longing that the reborn soul of a believer has will find its fulfillment in that hour. Third, every lingering fear will be swept away. I wonder if you and I could perfectly examine the last two, three, four weeks of our lives and if we could detail a list of all of the fears and anxieties that we've struggled with over the past month, do you realize that every anxiety that you face disappears in the hour of Christ's return? Fourth, as co-heirs with Christ, we will enter into the possession of every promised blessing. You hear us in the Reformed community speak often of the theology of the already and the not yet. Very simply put, that so much of the Christian life is built upon the already of the things that God has accomplished. But there are many things that yet are being worked out in their fullness, the not yet. In that hour, there will be no not yet. All of that ceases. And we come to the fullness of the already. Fifth, our full release from every vestige of sin takes place, only able not to sin. Dear Bruce, I want to thank you for the preaching of the word this morning. What a beautiful, 
exposition of the Romans 7 passage that we heard this morning. The news is dreadful, isn't it? Both our forensic standing and our inward condition, the news is dreadful. But in this hour, all dread is gone forever. Our condition is healed, never to be changed again. Sixth, our reunion of a glorified body and a perfected soul is complete. And last, the vindication of God's honor and glory will be set over all the earth. How beautiful. That's just a short list of some of the things that come to pass in that hour. What remarkable wonders these are. All because of the sure and certain return of Jesus Christ, point number one. Let's transition to see in our text to the second thing that I want us to see tonight, that we are given to believe about our death and the next life, what we are to believe about our death and the next life. We learn two comforts here. First, that believers are meant to grieve at death. And to grieve well. Read verse 13 with me. But we do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. We are to grieve as those with certainty. Now, there is a damaging lie that is foisted about in the more shallow quadrants of the Christian community that you have either perhaps participated in in the past or have heard. And it is that if you are truly a person of strong faith, when a loved one dies, that you will not grieve too deeply and that emotions will not overwhelm you and that grief is to be very measured and short-lived. And that, dear friends, is a misrepresentation of the Scriptures and a lie. Even more, such views are hurtful to saints and dishonoring to God and dishonoring to the gospel. A dear friend of mine says that since the entrance of sin into our lives at the fall, Grief is factory installed by God as a necessary reaction to the horror of death which came through our rebellion. Grief is factory installed by God as a necessary reaction to the horror of death. We grieve but Uh, We grieve because, but for the wickedness of our sin, we would never have had to see a loved one's lifeless body. We would never had to see the horrors of war, of murder, of wasting diseases, of old age. We would never see the scenes from Bukha, Ukraine. 
Paul is clear, we are to grieve, yet we must never sorrow unto death as those who have no hope. Our brother, Dr. Rick Phillips, recounts the death of two contrasting lives that kind of gives us a window into how we are to grieve. The year was 1899, and two prominent men died. The first was Colonel Robert Ingersoll, for whom the Ingersoll Lectures on Immortality at Harvard are named. Now, how many of us here knew that there were Ingersoll Lectures at Harvard on Immortality? I wonder if they still go on. He had given his rather sharp mind to the refutation of Christianity. Ingersoll died suddenly in 1899, leaving his unprepared family utterly devastated. So grief-stricken was his wife that she would not allow his body to be taken from their home as it decomposed until the health authorities took it for the safety of the rest of the family. His remains were cremated. His funeral service was such a scene of dismay, disarray, and despair that even the newspapers commented on the despair. The other man that died in 1899 was D.L. Moody, the great Christian evangelist. He'd been declining for some time. His family had gathered around his bed. On his last morning, his son heard him exclaim, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. Will, his son, thought he was dreaming and said, No, Dad, still you are here with us. But Moody replied, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. Is this death, he said? This is not bad. This is bliss. This is glorious. His daughter had come in and she began to pray aloud for his recovery and he said to her, No, no, Emma, do not pray for this. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to this. When Moody died, his scene was a scene of triumphant joy for thousands. And so at death we mourn, but we do so through tears of personal sorrow, infiltrated in every way, in every aspect, by the promises of King Jesus and the surety of his return. And so we may say, if Jesus rightly wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, May not you and I do so at the gravesides of our loved ones? Let me go further. As a pastor over the years, I have seen a number of situations where people, for whatever the reason may have been, internal to them or pressure placed upon them, refused to grieve over their loved ones because they felt they could not. That is not the pattern we want to follow. What Paul prohibits here is not grief, but hopeless grief. Paul does not prohibit mourning, 
But mourning, M-O-U-R-N, where there is no mourning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Where there is no light, where there is no coming day, where there is no joy. The second thing here that we need to learn about death itself that Paul shows us is is the state of our body and of our soul upon death if we are in Christ. In verses 13 and 14, they both refer to those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is a figure of speech that was not new to Paul. It was commonly used in the ancient world to speak of the dead. We hear in the Old Testament, and -and so-and-so slept with his fathers. We read that many times in the Scriptures. It's referred to its outward appearance of death, that is, that someone is sleeping. The New Testament uses this figure of speech at least 12 times, helping us to see with our mind's eye the rest that comes to the believer who dies in Christ. But what is not being taught is some unconscious slumber until a future future time. The doctrine of Scripture concerning the status of the dead in Christ is that we are disembodied, unclothed souls living between death of the body and the resurrection, who are nonetheless in the very presence of Christ, perfected by His power. Let me read to you just one brief statement from Paul in that beautiful section of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, where we learn much regarding both death and the intermediate state of believers. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, finish it with me, we are away from the Lord. In other words, when my body and soul are here now as ours are, We can say that we are present here, but absent from the Lord. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. Yet we are of good courage. That's important. We are of good courage. And what is that courage in, or what is that courage laying hold of? That we would rather be away from the body, and what? At home with the Lord. So in the moment that we are away from the body, the scriptural teaching is that we are now at home with the Lord. We are present with the Lord. There is no unconscious state of humiliation in which we await some awakening of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 32 of our Westminster Confession says this, The bodies of men and of women, after death, return to dust, and they see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. 
And beside these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Very beautiful, clear statement of our fathers of the faith. So then at our death in Christ, we go immediately to be with him and awaiting the triumphant return of Christ and when the not yet becomes the already. In death we gain our highest good, the very presence of Christ. And lastly tonight, third, we learn briefly this comfort of our death and dying. Listen, that as in this life, so also in the next life, our union with Jesus Christ is our deepest comfort and our greatest joy. As in this life, so in the next life, our deepest comfort and our deepest joy is our union with Christ. He is the fountainhead of all blessing. Read verse 14 with me. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 14, apart from other things that Paul says in verse 14, is a statement of union with Christ. That as was true of Jesus in his death and resurrection, so is true of us in Christ, in our union with him. In Romans 6, the precursor to the section on which Bruce preached this morning, we die to sin and self with Christ by faith, and we rise to a new life of obedience in his resurrection every day. And in the life to come, as surely as Jesus died and rose bodily, so also will we be united to him, body and soul. My favorite Puritan author, simply because of his use of imagery and pictures and windows into the truth, Thomas Watson writes this, Christ did not rise from the dead as a private person, but as the public head of the church. And the head being raised, the rest of the body shall not always lie in the grave. As the first fruits is the sure evidence that the harvest is beginning, so the resurrection of Christ is the sure evidence of the rising of our bodies from the grave. When someone who has a harvest, an orchard of peaches from the great state of Georgia, a Georgia peach, and the farmer goes to his or her field and begins to pick the first of the peaches and then waits and determines we're not ready to harvest. And a day or two or three or four later, he goes out again and picks a few peaches from various places and says, the time has come. The harvest is ready. This is what the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, 
the session of Jesus to the Father's right hand and his second coming means for us that the harvest is near and that you and I will be part of that glorious harvest. When in full redemption, the marriage banquet of the supper begins, we enter the kingdom of glory and we reign with him as co-heirs and we enjoy the unbridled consummation of our physical and spiritual renewal endlessly so. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how shall we live in light of these great truths? We've all done it when we knew that beloved family were coming or great guests whom we love deeply were coming to our home. We prepared. We stocked our pantry and refrigerator. We cleaned our floors. We washed the sheets. We made ready. Lord Jesus, help us in the power of your spirit day by day to make ready for your coming. We ask it to your honor and glory.